Let's pray. Father God, we uh, thank You again for this morning and for the truths that we just sang. That there can be a place that we get to through You where there is no guilt in life or fear in death. And God, we thank You that that's attainable through Christ. Who in humility took on human flesh and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Father, help us to study Your Word now. To be encouraged, to be challenged in the ways that You direct. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There's a trend that's becoming only more and more popular, and that's the trend of obstacle racing, thanks to uh, things like the Tough Mudder and uh, Spartan that are now TV shows, uh, because there's nothing more satisfying while eating a bowl of ice cream than watching really fit people punish themselves. Um, And so we have these Tough Mudder and, and Spartan races and other races like this, uh, where you have to go and you're, you're running, it's a race, there's a winner, but there's also a group element to it. Some of them are done by teams, but then some of the obstacles, you see the, the, the lady being pulled out of the mud, you can't complete them on your own. So while you're running individually, you're also helping the other racers. Uh, and there's parts where you need a person to carry you. The guy being carried, I actually went to college with him, Uh, and the fact that he had the presence of mind to ham it up for a camera right there tells you everything you need to know about Pat's personality. So that's my friend Pat Veneron getting carried uh, by a guy whose legs look like timbers. Um, But these obstacle races, you, you complete these obstacles, you're climbing over things, you're crawling through things, you're looking to finish the race with as good a time as you can, and... You absolutely need the help of other people, or it won't, or it won't go. And so you're responding both as an individual and as a group to the adversity ahead of you. A couple weeks ago, uh, we started out in Hebrews 12, uh, continuing from 11, uh, on our need to run the race set before us with endurance. Last week, Pastor Hightow graciously walked us through enduring God's discipline and how we do that with joy because of who God is. And Hightow also displayed for us through the text that God's discipline is not always correcting our sin, but sometimes it's, it's redirecting us to a path we didn't anticipate. And it takes various forms and various trials that sometimes are because of sin and sometimes for other reasons. When we as children are disciplined, we can either learn and grow, or we can harden our hearts and try to ignore it. So how should we as believers respond to God's loving discipline? Last week the text was all about God is going to discipline you because He's a loving Father and we are His children. So how do we respond to this as loving children? And what in the world does a race called the Tough Mudder have to do with it? To answer this simply, we need to understand that the Christian life is one that is both 
holds personal responsibility as well as communal caring, right? So let's open up to Hebrews 12 if you haven't done so yet. And let's start reading in verse 12. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight the paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for, though he, uh, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. So as we seek to figure out how do we respond to God's discipline, the first thing we see is that God's discipline, we take this on individually. He starts out with this, therefore, responding to God's discipline. Because of, of all that we've just learned about God's discipline, we respond this way. Hebrews as a letter is, writ, is a very rich mix of encouragement based on the power and work of Jesus. And it's also a warning that we don't take holiness lightly. Here in Hebrews 12, the work of Jesus and the holiness of God have come together for our encouragement in the midst of adversity. Specifically, adversity that's brought from God's discipline. But running the race of the Christian life and dealing with sin in, in an honest, confessional way and its consequences can be quite daunting. Especially in view of the overwhelming nature of life with a holy God and a God who lovingly disciplines us. In light of all this, the, the author encourages us, and he uses two forms of body language that are pretty universal. Drooping hands and weak knees. These two images are used to paint the image of fatigue and fear. That sometimes we get going in the Christian life and it gets hard. We screw up making it harder for ourselves and we are met with exhaustion. When will this end? When will this trial be over? When will I escape my past and fear that if anyone finds out who I think I really am, they'll reject me? If I have to admit what I did, then I will be rejected. People will see I'm not good enough. Or I don't want to face up to that. I don't want to go through this next season. And we find fatigue and fear. The Christian life is a lot of things, but idol is not one of them. There's no neutral in following Jesus. But if we give in to fatigue and fear, it can quickly become just that. Oftentimes, we want to be able to repent of our sin and receive that forgiveness in such a way that it erases all physical consequences of that sin. 
Or the prayer that I've often had is, God, I know you're trying to teach me something, but the PowerPoint version will be so much easier than what I'm experiencing now. I'll take really good notes. I'll study really hard for the test. Can we do this a different way? In terms of sin and its consequences, uh, a helpful example for me has been the life of David. David sinned with Bathsheba. He was confronted. He confessed his sin. He received immediate spiritual forgiveness for that while having to face physical consequences for it. And sometimes we get not only tired of those consequences, but we get afraid. What if this doesn't end for another 10 years or more? What, what happens if people reject me when they learn blank about me? Hightower last week gave us some really helpful reminders in terms of facing God's discipline. He said we are God's children. When we face God's discipline, we remember that we are God's children that God has no evil motivation in His workings, and that God knows what we need better than we do. And so when we are tempted to drop our hands, when we are tempted to give in to the fear, let us remember these things. We are God's children. He has no evil motivation in His workings. And He knows what we need better than we do. Let us cling to this. The Old Testament instruction to God's people was for them to hold fast to God's commands, for them to hold fast, to cling on to who God is. And may we do the same thing. Verse 13 instructs us as individuals to let the work of God take its course and to remove the clutter. It says to make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint so you won't become injured worse, but instead that you'll be healed. For the Hebrew mind, when they hear uh, make straight paths, there's a lot of Old Testament imagery that will come to mind. Psalm 119.105 that, that we can't hear without singing Amy Grant, Right? Your word is a light unto my feet, is a lamp to my feet and a light unto my path. That God's word allows us to see clearly so we're not tripping over things. Also in Proverbs, uh, in Proverbs chapter 4, verses 26 and 27. It says, ponder the path for your feet. Then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. So consider where it is that you're walking. Don't give in to fear. Don't give in to the fatigue. But take away the things that are injuring you. Take away these things that are causing you pain that you can, that you can easily get out of. Instead of deliberately putting something in your path that's going to hurt you more. Some people think they need to continually test themselves as though our moral life is like weightlifting where we have to max out every so often. And so they say, well, I, I, I do this to see how strong I am. You know, I, I'm a recovering alcoholic and I want to make sure that I'm strong so every now and then I'll buy my pack of gum at the liquor store. 
This is like someone who's just had like a quadruple bypass and a lifelong history of high blood pressure be like, you know what? I'm going to go on a pizza-only diet to test out the new tubes. No, the, it doesn't work that way. But we do this with sin. We're like, I'm going to put myself in the path of sin to see if I'm any stronger than I was years ago. No. Take that out of your path and follow Jesus. We make straight our path by repenting and removing sin so that fatigue and fear don't win out. Instead, they diminish over time as we follow God. And while we as individuals have a lot of spiritual work to do in ourselves, in lifting our hands, in in strengthening our knees, in making straight that path, we don't just do it alone. We don't do it independent of each other. Instead, looking at the text, we see that this isn't an individual thing, but it's a group thing. We respond to God's discipline in times of adversity on a personal level, but we also respond to them as part of the body of Christ, and we do this by doing it together. Back to the analogy of the obstacle races, part of the point is that nobody can do it alone. They build it, they build these races so that you can't go in as a single individual and complete it by yourself with no assistance. It defeats the purpose of it. And the same is with the Christian life. We don't, we don't go through the Christian life thinking, I'm going to do this completely alone, because when we do that, all of our weaknesses are going to be exploited. And we're going to be there, and everyone's going to say, wow, this person's really screwed up because we're trying to do it alone. And furthermore, when we try and do it alone, we look past the people that need help from us. We're like, wow, that person's really screwed up. And then we smack into a wall ourselves instead of helping that person and then letting them help us. In verses 14 through 17 here, strive for peace with everyone. And for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. The first thing we do here together is we pursue. We pursue peace and we pursue holiness. Peace with everyone. This instruction is the epitome of individual and together. A local church is unable to maintain, much less pursue, mutual peace if we as individuals are merely showing up to the same place at the same time every week. If we come in here as a group of silos who have had our individual weeks and we just try to stay away from relationally bumping into each other to rubbing off on each other, then we will never find that mutual peace. We will never build that because... Conflict will, will remain inside our own walls. This, this only intensifies our need as a congregation to know and be known. If you are coming here to Westchester, or if you're visiting and you're, and, and you're normally at another church, and you come every week, and your goal is to sing, to listen, to tithe, and to leave so you can mark church off your schedule and you're, you're voiding relationship 
from the body of Christ, you are hurting yourself. I know you feel like you're protecting yourself. I know you feel like you're sheltering yourself. But when you do that, you are hurting yourself and you're hurting the body of Christ because we need you to be engaged with us. And you need us in your life. This means there's times where you you will need to intentionally seek other people out to create peace where it doesn't exist. Maybe you're not at peace with that person. Maybe you see two people and they're not at peace with each other, so you pursue each of them. And you take on the role that we as believers have as a peacemaker. And as someone who as an ambassador of Christ brings reconciliation. We need to pursue peace. We also need to pursue personal holiness. For ourselves and for others. It is no secret that we are filled with sinful imperfections. And it's an easy trap to functionally define Christianity as sin management. But our holiness is more than just sinning less frequently. Our holiness is a love for God. It's a relationship with God. It's Him cleaning us and making us holy. And sin management is a part of that. Accountability is a large piece of that. But our holiness, the holiness that that the text says, without which we will not see the Lord, is unattainable for us. And so for us to pursue holiness means we need to pursue Jesus. And pursuing holiness, personal holiness for someone else, doesn't mean we see someone and be like, you're really screwed up and you need to knock it off. It means we go to them and say, can I help you walk to Jesus right now? I want to take your hand and place it in the hand that has a hole in it. Because what you need right now isn't Pastor Chuck coming and yelling at you for everything you've done wrong. What you need now is just to look at Jesus and behold Him and let His holiness become your holiness through repentance, through following Him. So we help each other to come to Jesus. May we only become better at coming to Jesus and letting Him change us. With both peace and holiness, we need to bear our responsibility for for ourselves, for our own personal actions, while looking to help others as well. Neither I or any of the other pastors or the elders can dictate the way you act in the week. The way you think, the way you relate to each other. Only you can be responsible for those things. And at the same time, there's this togetherness to it. And verse 15 says, See that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. We not only need to pursue, we need to look around. See that no one fails to obtain the grace of God in our pursuit of God's grace for our own growth and holiness we need to be mindful of the people around us 
We need to help those around us. There may be obstacles in life that we can help others through because we've been through them. There may be obstacles in life that because of the way we're wired, we can sail through them while other people can't. Or because of the way we're wired that we falter at every time and we need someone else who's going to have that hand up to pull us out. We need to know and be known. Westchester is a great church and I'm immensely grateful to not only be a part of this church, but also to be one of your pastors. I urge you to deepen your relationships here. If you're not currently part of an adult Bible fellowship, become part of one. Enter into that. Make that part of your weekly time allotment of saying, I need this fellowship component. I need this additional learning. I need people around me praying for me, and I need to be fellowshipping with others. I need to be praying for them. I need to be helping them. If you're part of an adult Bible fellowship, find some friends in that and say, let's start getting together outside of Sunday mornings. Let's start meeting every week or every other week. Let's discuss the sermons. Let's study Scripture together. Let's be praying for each other on a deeper level. Or, let, or you find a group of people and say, let's start serving together. Let's go help Philip. Let's go play with some kids with Philip. And love them in the name of Jesus. Let's find a, a, a service trip that we can go on together. Let's find a local ministry that we can partner with together as a group of friends. I want you right now to look around you. Look up and down your row. Look at the people around you. We need each other. We need each other to lovingly redirect us back to walking with Jesus at different times in our lives. And I want you to look at the person next to you, and I want you to say right now, I need you to point me out to God's grace. I need you to point me to God's grace. Go ahead and say that. I need you to point me to God's grace. And now I want you to look at each other and say, I, I want to point you to God's grace. The author gives us two areas in life that we need to look out for each other in God's grace. And these, these mirror what we're pursuing. While we are pursuing peace with everyone, He says, see that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, that by it you may become defiled. There's a lot of gardeners in this room. I'm one of them. My garden plot is, uh, we'll call it meek. It's about four foot by eight foot. It's just just this tiny little thing. It's enough that I can make jalapeno hummus um, and have fresh tomatoes, uh, which... I'm pretty easily satisfied that way. Any gardener or anyone who actually likes a a nice-looking lawn will tell you that weeds are best dealt with when they're small. You get a small weed, you pluck it up. When you have a dandelion that's this tall, the whole root comes out effortless. When your dandelion looks like a bouquet of flowers, 
It's like calling the backhoe and you still might not get it. You need like chemicals that require you to wear like rubber gloves up to here and a gas mask. Keep all the kids off the lawn for three weeks. Because once that root is down, you're not getting that out. He says, don't let a root of bitterness well up. Don't let this come out and defile you. There are times in Proverbs where it says it's righteous to overlook an offense. It's loving to overlook an offense. And there are some really small weeds that it's really easy to overlook. And overlooking them in love is all you need to do. But don't let that overlooking out of love become a way of avoiding things that are going to become big weeds and overtake your garden and defile you. Sometimes we do that. Us Midwesterners, we're really good at that. Oh, that's no big deal. And inside, we're like, you know, we we start talking like the Tasmanian devil inside. Because we're just so angry. But on the outside, we're like, oh, I've overlooked that in love. No, look around you and help people deal with these roots of bitterness as we deal with our own. One of the things that's really uh, taught me out of my trips to Haiti is, um, is that the heart really matters. That's one thing I've really learned. And uh, one time I heard, heard some witch doctors say, we know who the real Christians are because we can't touch them. But if they're a Christian by name only, it, they're the same as everyone else. And uh, the last few trips I've gone down, there's, there's a brother in Christ named Nelson who used to be a witch doctor. And uh, he says, I, couldn't, I can never do anything to, to Christians and pastors, but if I, if I really wanted to get at a pastor, here's what I would do. And, and here's the only thing that worked for me as a witch doctor to have success against a pastor. I'd, I'd steal from him. And I'd steal from him again. And I'd steal from him again. And I'd do that until they got really, really angry at me and they wouldn't forgive me. And when they got angry and they, and they wouldn't forgive me, that's when I could do something. That's when I, as a witch doctor, could have success. And we think of, don't let the sun go down on your anger so you don't give Satan a foothold. And we think, oh, that means nothing. No, it means a lot. That when we let these roots of bitterness grow and we feed them, Hebrews says here that we may not become defiled. Paul says so you don't give Satan a foothold. And there are times where we get angry and we're like, Satan, here's not only a foothold, here's a staircase with a really nice banister. Come on up. I'll give you real estate. And I suggest when those bitterness come up, that we realize everyone around us is made in the image of God. If they're a believer, they have the same Holy Spirit in them that we have in us. Let's work it out. Surely we can find that common ground. Surely we can follow God, become humble, and forgive. And then there's this other area. He, he says that no one, so see to it that no one fails to obtain the the, the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up, and that no one is sexually immoral and unholy like Esau. And we're going to deal with Esau in a little bit. 
Because I think the author just put in Esau just to confuse guys like me who try to exegete the text. It's not entirely true, but it was a little frustrating this week. See to it that no one becomes sexually immoral or unholy. Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4 says that we were created for holiness, not for sexual immorality. And he, and he says in that passage that when we are sexually immoral, it harms each other. And it's for harm. He also, Paul also tells us that sexual immorality is a sin against our own bodies. Proverbs compares it to holding a fire against your chest. If you are unmarried, I just have this question for you. Who's helping you walk in purity? Don't do it alone. There's no need. Who's helping you? Who are the friends around you? If you were in a dating relationship, you're in a, you're in a committed relationship, there's a lot of emotions there, and you're not married, who's helping you? Who has access to your life to say, how was your date Friday night? What'd you guys do? Oh, you stayed over that long? What happened? You need to tell me. And if lines were crossed to say, okay, so what needs to happen so that doesn't happen again? What needs to change? How can I help you with this? Not in a judgmental tone, but in a tone of God's grace that encourages holiness. All right? Let's not do dates alone anymore. Let's just double date. There's, you can talk while you're driving. You can talk on the phone. Let's guard holiness. And then, for all of us, um, technology is a great thing, uh, but it has some problems. So, we have phones, we have tablets, we have computers. And as a youth pastor, I saw time and time again, parents would give their kids an iPhone or a smartphone and they thought it was this great thing. I'm giving them this cool technology. And they didn't realize they were giving their teenage son private access to the entire internet. And they'd come and say, oh, I, I found all this stuff and I, I don't know how this happened. Well, you, 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 gave your, you gave someone internet access in the most private locations on a screen that's really easy to hide. As, as pastors... On our devices, my, my phone has it, my, my, this computer has it. We, uh, we use a, a resource called accountabletoyou.com. And uh, I've, over the years, I've, I've used, I've been accountability partners on a variety of different uh, platforms for this. I found this one to be the best. It's reporting, it's simple, it's cheap, it's efficient. On your, you know, some... Uh, X3 Watch is another one I've, I've used either myself or as an accountability partner. And that one, you have to use the browser on your phone, but it doesn't monitor your apps. This one, you can monitor your apps. So you, you, you can monitor your YouTube, your Facebook, your, your whatever, Instagram. Uh, that's like the extent of my social networking knowledge. There's one called Twitter, right? I, I heard about that. Um, the thing about roots of bitterness and sexual immorality, these are both very private sins. For the most part, you could, you could be deep, deep in both of these sins and have it all be internal without anyone knowing. Both of them 
In Scripture, we're told that these are ways, we're explicitly told that this will give Satan a foothold into our lives. If you are married, frequently be intimate with your, regularly be intimate with your spouse so that Satan doesn't have a foothold into your marriage. That's what 1 Corinthians tells us. Don't withhold from each other. We don't want Satan to have unnecessarily easy access into our lives. And so let's work on that. And then we get to Esau, this tragic story of Esau. Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterwards, when he desired to inherit this blessing, this birthright, he was rejected, and he found no chance to repent, even though he saw it being the birthright with tears. Esau is this tragic man who, what he did is he took this very carnal desire. I'm super, super hungry. And our roots of bitterness, our sexual morality, these are carnal desires where I want this for a moment. And I'll do myself a lot of harm to feel good about myself because that person's a jerk and I'm going to let them know that they're a jerk. I'm going to do myself a lot of harm because I have this urge that I think I just need to do something about and that'll make my world right. Esau had an urge where he was really hungry. And his hunger was so great that his hunger for a bowl of soup was better than his hunger to be a a part of God's plan of restoration for the world. We need to remember, when we look at this this words of... uh, the word that ESV does puts as repent. This is Esau sought to undo his wrong, but he, he never, when we read the account in Genesis, he never repented as we would understand it. Albert Moeller says this, true repentance requires hatred of our sin. Tears alone do not signal Repentance. We can be sad about our sin without hating our sin. Do you guys see that? He goes on to say, there are many people who are brokenhearted over their sin, but they do not repent. They do not agree with God about what their sin is. They do not understand that their sin demonstrates a need for Jesus. They may show regret but they are unwilling to repent. This is the warning the author presents to us in the person of Esau. I don't want us to just sin and be like, oh, I'm really sad that I sinned and got caught. I want us, when we sin, to say, I need Jesus. I need Jesus. And as we, as we're sitting here now as a group of people, here's, we've gone through this text. Here's, here's what I want our takeaway to be. As individuals, can we run to Jesus? And as we're doing that, can we look around us and bring others with us? 
We don't present Jesus as those who have found him and therefore our lives are perfect and we are here just to help other people have perfect lives like us because they're too dumb to figure it out. Instead, we come and we say, I found Jesus, I continually need Jesus, and you do too. Can we go to him together? And as we run to Jesus, we take others with us. Let's pray. Father God, we are in such need of you. And I praise you that when we do come to you to repent, that you are quick to forgive us and to cleanse us. Lord, may we never tire of coming to Jesus. May we never tire of of being honest with you with our sin. And as we do so, God, would you strengthen us? Would you straighten our paths? And help us to care for the people around us in the same way. And it's in Jesus' name, amen.